Thank you for joining us for Sermons on Demand from Friendship Grace Brethren Church. We provide these videos as a way to share the pulpit messages and teachings offered at Friendship Grace Brethren Church. If you find these videos a helpful resource, please drop us a note at info at friendshipgracebrethren.com. Now open your Bibles and get ready to dig into the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you do for us. We love you and our desire is to always be prepared to give an answer. And so we've been focusing recently in our Sunday school hour on ways to be prepared. And we continue that this morning and Lord willing in the next uh, few weeks, Father. We always want to be ready to uh, to talk about you and to explain and and see men and women, boys and girls, come to know you. So just give us the opportunity to do that. Thank you for men like Dr. Turek and, and others that we've been watching as they uh, explain things to us. Father, our desire is always to be involved and in, in to be a lighthouse for you in our communities, in our families, in our workplaces, and wherever you find us, wherever you place us, to always be ready. So thank you, Father. Give us a great time as we, uh, as we continue to, uh, to explore. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And, uh, and then as we go into the, into the worship service, as we worship you through fellowship and, and music and study. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, if the books come in, I had a hard time finding books for our next series. Um, the, we're planning on doing Forensic Faith by J. Warner Wallace. Yeah, but they're way expensive on Amazon compared to others that I got them for two and a half dollars cheaper than Amazon. And, and so I, these are workbooks. So as we go through the process, there's, there's things that we'll do to fill out the workbook, plus the video and discussion and so forth. So uh, they're supposed to be here Wednesday or Thursday. So uh, hopefully we'll be able to do that. Uh, it'll be at least eight sessions of uh, Forensic Faith. It's, I, I'm buying the, or we, the church bought the, uh, the workbooks. It's worthwhile reading or listening to the uh, the book forensic faith um, you can buy the book individually you don't need it to do the to do the class but it's it's helpful um, the Lee County Library has several copies of them to download so you can do that if you don't want to buy it and they also have several copies of the audiobook that you can download so uh, if you like to listen and not read as many do that's a way to go Mm-hmm. That are really cheap. Yep. I, uh, I, get, I get emails every day from several of them. And uh, often they have books that are free that day on, on, uh, yeah. on Kindle. And so I just, I don't care what it is, I just select it. So my Kindle library keeps growing. So if I'm ever sequestered somewhere, I can uh, read until my heart's content. So that, that'll be starting next week, Forensic Faith. And then after that, uh, we're going to do, I still don't have enough faith to be an atheist, which is the much bigger presentation 
of what we've been going through the last few weeks. So you're going to be tired of this stuff by the time we're done. Chuck's already tired of it. Oh, just tired. Okay. Okay, so this is uh, the final um, 38, 39 minutes of uh, his two-day presentation at Cornerstone Chapel up in Loudoun, uh, Virginia, outside of D.C., uh, just, a, just a couple of years ago. Frank Turk, and this is the conclusion of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Now, one other thing about miracles. If miracles occur, actually, do you realize they don't need to occur today for Christianity to be true? There could have been no miracles since Jesus and the apostles, but Christianity would still be true. If miracles occurred in the first century with Jesus and the apostles, Christianity is still true whether or not miracles occur today. I think they do occur today. In fact, Craig Keener, a brilliant researcher from Asbury Seminary about 10 years ago, put out a hernia-inducing two-volume book called Miracles, where he's, he's looking into evidence for modern-day miracles. But let's leave that aside. Even if miracles do or don't occur today, that's not the point. If miracles do occur today, you ought not see a lot of them, if any. Why? Because miracles, by definition, have to be rare to get our attention. If miracles occurred all the time, we'd go, hey, this stuff happens all the time. It's no big deal, right? I mean, imagine if resurrections occurred routinely. What would the resurrection of Christ mean? Nothing. You go to somebody, you go, Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was God. And the guy goes, so what? Uncle Leroy just rose from the dead two weeks ago. <laughs> now I got to give the inheritance back, right? <laughs> No, it's got to be a rare event. It can't be a regular event. If it's a regular event, it's not a miracle. The only way you can identify a miracle is against the backdrop of regular events that occur most of the time. And you know, for Christianity to be true, or let me put it another way, for atheism to be true, every single miracle claim and spiritual experience in the history of the world has to be mistaken. Is that possible? That's possible. Is it reasonable to believe that? No. Everybody's been wrong. There's no spiritual realm? Not likely. Now, so miracles are possible. The next question, is the New Testament true, particularly with regard to the resurrection? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? We don't have to assume, and we're not going to assume the Bible's inerrant at this point. We just want to see if the documents and other evidence we can bring to bear from archaeology and other writings can tell us whether or not Jesus really died and rose from the dead. Now, in the book, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. We have a chapter called The Top 10 Reasons We Know the New Testament Writers Told the Truth. We don't have time, obviously, to go through all that here. I just want to talk about two of them here tonight, okay? The first one I want to talk about is something known as embarrassing stories. What are embarrassing stories? Historians know that when they're reading something that purports to be an historical document, if there's something embarrassing to the author or authors in the text, it's probably true. Why would, it would be, why would it be true? Because you're not going to invent stories or details that embarrass you. You might invent things that make you look good, right? But you're not going to invent things that make you look bad. In fact, let me ask you guys a question in here. How many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look good? If you don't have your hand up right now, you're lying. 
to make yourself look good. And it's not working. We know you're lying. All right, how many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look bad? <laughs> Only if you're a pool shark or something for a short period of time, right? You don't generally do that. Well, the New Testament writers have filled the New Testament with embarrassing details and stories that make them look bad. They never would have invented this. That's why we call this the duff factor. They're not making this up. In fact, let me just give you a few of these. First of all, the leader of the disciples is Peter, and Jesus calls him Satan. Now, you think they made this up? You think Mark at one point who wrote this down said to Peter, hey Pete, I'm gonna make this a real interesting story. I'm gonna have the Lord call you Satan. What do you think Peter would have said? Have him call you Satan. Look, I'm the leader here. And then Peter says, Lord, I'll never deny you. What does he wind up doing? He denies him three times and at the crucifixion, all the disciples, maybe with the exception of one, they all run away. This is like a Monty Python movie. Run away, they all run away. And who are the brave ones? The women, Look, that's right. I am woman, hear me roar. Come on, let's go, right? The women are the brave ones. Now, who wrote the New Testament documents down? Men. Now, what man is going to invent that he was hiding for fear of the Jews why the women went down and discovered the empty tomb? Would any man in here invent that? I mean, if I was inventing it, if I was there, I'd make myself look good, wouldn't you? I'd, march, I'd, I'd say something like this. Let's see, we marched right down there and we overpowered that elite Roman guard. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. What do you think? John said, get out. Peter roundhouse kicked him. Thomas said, we'll be back. And we won't doubt either. And then on Sunday morning, we marched right down to the tomb and we saw Jesus who congratulated us on our great faith. And then we went and comforted the trembling women. I would never say I was Mr. Sissy Pants why the women went down to discover the empty tomb. And oh, by the way, why would you never say the women were the first witnesses in that culture? I mean, forget the fact that it was embarrassing to men, it was, but independent of that, why in that culture would you never say the women were the witnesses? Yes, because a woman's testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. So if you're making up the New Testament story, you'd only have the men be the witnesses. Yet all four gospels say the women were the first witnesses, which is telling us what? They really were. In fact, one of them was a formerly demon-possessed woman. Gee, what a great credible witness we have here, right? Does that make any sense? I actually had a woman come up to me once and she said, Frank, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. I said, why? And she said, because he wanted to get the story out. <laughs> I said, that is an excellent point. I hadn't thought of that. Because ladies, when your man comes home from work, does he say much? <laughs> there could have been a nuclear explosion down at the plant. He's not gonna tell you. You'll see it on the news before you hear it from him. You'll be watching the news going, Hey, hon, what happened? Oh, yeah, forgot to tell you. The, the nuke blew up. I've been hot for three days. What's for dinner? Right. He's not going to tell you. I can't even believe this next verse is in the New Testament, but it is. You know the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the biography of Matthew, where Jesus is giving his disciples the Great Commission. I mean, this is the climax, right? 
He's standing there saying, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Notice he doesn't say make believers. He says make disciples. There's a difference, right? Anyway, as he's standing there, it says right there in verse 17, about the disciples, who he's talking to, it says, some believed, but some doubted. What? They're doubting? He's standing, resurrected, right in front of them. And they're going, you see that guy over there? Yep. That guy over there is Jesus. Oh, no, it can't be Jesus. He was just killed not long ago. No, I'm telling you, it's him. Look, Jesus is dead. The Romans killed him. It's him. Look, they whipped him. They put nails in him. They put a spear in his side. Blood and water came out. I'm telling you, Jesus is dead. It's him. It can't be. It is. How do you know? The women told me. They're not making this up. There's even potentially embarrassing details about Jesus in there. Jesus is considered out of his mind by his own family who want to seize him and take him home. In Mark chapter 3, it says his own family thinks he's nuts. Now, you may have heard the scholars say that the New Testament writers invented Jesus to be God. Oh, really? Then why is Mark chapter 3 in there, which is almost universally recognized to be the earliest gospel, his family thinks he's nuts. Jesus is called a drunkard. He's called a madman. He's called demon-possessed. You think they invented this? He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, which easily could have been seen as a sexual advance. And oh, by the way, notice there are two prostitutes in Jesus' bloodline. Who are they? Rahab and Tamar. Tamar plays a prostitute, right? Now, do you think when Matthew and Luke put the genealogies together, they said, you know what? I really think we ought to spice up the Messiah's bloodline a little bit. Let's put a couple of prostitutes in there. What do you say? Rahab, Tamar. In fact, there's a lot of shady people in the bloodline. Judah, from where we get the term Jew from? Jesus, from the tribe of Judah. Not a good guy. Read about him. It's like in Genesis 37, 38 somewhere. David. David, a man after God's own heart. Yeah, but he's a liar, adulterer, and a murderer. Gee, I guess there's hope for the rest of us then, huh? <laughs> Bathsheba's in there too. Do you know Matthew, when he gets to her in the genealogy, he won't mention her name? What does he say instead? Uriah's wife. He's telling the truth because who is Uriah? Husband of Bathsheba whom David had killed so he could have Bathsheba. But she's in there. He's telling the truth, even though it's embarrassing. And then Jesus is hung on a tree. And anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. If you're making up a Messiah to the Jews, you don't hang them on a tree because according to Deuteronomy 21, 23, anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. Now notice, in the Garden of Eden, there are two trees. What are the two trees? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then all the way at the book of Revelation, you have another tree, the same tree, the tree of life. I think there's a tree right in the middle. What's the tree right in the middle? The tree right in the middle is the tree upon which Jesus was hung because we sinned at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only way we're getting back to the tree of life is through the tree that Jesus was hung on because his sacrifice opened the door for us to be forgiven. Otherwise, we wouldn't see life. Now, you would never make any of this up, would you? If you were, it's too embarrassing. Now, there's a lot more in the books on this, 
But we got to move on to one more, and that is excruciating deaths. This is the line of evidence that says these men who were in a position to know whether Jesus truly resurrected or not, died excruciating deaths when they could have saved themselves by simply saying, look, it never happened. Now, it's really important to keep in mind that the New Testament writers, all of them, with the exception of Luke, all of them were Jewish believers in Yahweh. Luke is the only Gentile. All the other writers believed in Yahweh and they thought they were God's chosen people. And there's two things they didn't believe. They didn't believe a man could claim to be God, that would be blasphemy, and they didn't think a man would resurrect from the dead in the middle of time. They knew we would all resurrect from the dead at the end of time, according to Daniel 12, but they didn't think man could claim to be God and resurrect from the dead in the middle of time. And yet, that's exactly what they wound up claiming. How so? Well, let me ask you this. What did the New Testament writers have to gain by making up a new religion? What did they get for saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? Well, they got kicked out of the synagogue and then they got beaten, tortured, and killed. Last time I checked, that was not a list of perks. We're going to start a new religion. We are? Yeah. What's it going to get us? Well, first we get kicked out of the synagogue, then we get beaten, tortured, and killed. Well, sign me up. You know, what a great idea. Why haven't we thought about this earlier? In fact, they had every motive to say the resurrection did not happen, not every motive to say it did. You know, I get the question, maybe you get the question if you're a Christian, are there any non-Christian writers that talk about Jesus and the apostles? Yeah, there are. They're all in chapter nine of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I don't have time to get into it now. But I just wanna point out that when people ask you for non-Christian sources, there's an illicit assumption normally underneath that request, and here it is. You really can't trust the New Testament writers because you see the New Testament writers were biased. You see, they were religious people. We know religious people tend to embellish things. You just gotta look at the secular writers to figure out what really happened. If you think about that for more than five seconds, you'll realize how stupid that claim is. What did these people have to gain by saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? Nothing. They had everything to lose from a temporal perspective. Some of you may know my friend Jay Warner Wallace. He's a cold case homicide detective who's been on Dateline more than any other homicide detective because he solves uh, homicides decades old. And he's taken his homicide skills to investigate the greatest homicide of all time, the homicide of Jesus. He wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity. Coldcasechristianity.com is his website. He and I do a lot of work together. We'll be together next week in Cincinnati. In any event, Jim says that whenever he finds a body that he knows has been murdered, he says there's only three reasons why that guy's dead. There's not a thousand reasons. We don't need to look into a thousand motives. There's only three possible motives or a combination of, this three, of these three. There was either a sex issue, a money issue, or a power issue. Sex, money, and power. That drives people to murder. In fact, sex, money, and power are the three main motivators that drive any of us to sin. Why? Because sex, money, and power are good things, but they're so good, sometimes we'll take shortcuts to get them. So you, Jim says, if you're gonna say that these Jewish writers of the New Testament invented all this, you've gotta find one or more of those three motivators, sex, money, or power. All right, let's, let's take a look at it. Ladies and gentlemen, did the Jewish writers of the New Testament suddenly get real popular with the ladies for saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? No. Did they get money? No, they were not 21st century prosperity gospel preachers. Did they get power? 
No, they got the opposite of power. They got persecuted. Paul had power when he was opposing the church. As soon as he becomes a Christian, he's the one persecuted. He lost all his power. So there is no motive to make this up. There's every motive to say it wasn't true, not every motive to say it was. And then you might ask yourself the question, why would they die for a known lie? You say, wait a minute, Frank, if you're gonna say that martyrdom is evidence for Christianity, don't you have to say that martyrdom is evidence for Islam? No, why? Because there's a lot of differences between the Muslim martyrs of today and the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times. But let me just give you one main difference for our purposes here. The Muslim martyrs of today haven't witnessed anything that tells them that Islam is true. They just have faith. The New Testament writers, on the other hand, witnessed Jesus rise from the dead. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They verified with their own senses that Jesus had risen from the dead. Some people will die for a lie they think is the truth. Nobody will die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament writers were in a position to know whether it was a lie or not, and they went to their deaths anyway. You can't get better evidence than that unless you were there yourself. Now, what I'm about to say is going to sound like heresy for some of you who, like I do, believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God. But it's not. Just stick with me, okay? Christianity is not true because a series of documents we put under one binding we call the Bible says it's true. In fact, Christianity would be true if the Bible never existed. You say, how can that be? Because Christianity did not originate with a book. Christianity originated with an event, the resurrection. There would be no book without the resurrection. Do you realize there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Why were they Christians? Because they witnessed the resurrected Jesus, not because they read a book. In fact, you could put it this way. The New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. You wouldn't have Jews in the first century claiming that a man claimed to be God and then rose from the dead unless... A man claimed to be God and then rose from the dead. Because they had no motive to make this up and every motive to say it wasn't true. So thankfully they did write it down so we could know about it and order our lives according to it. But if they had never written it down, it would still be true. We just wouldn't know anything about it. Are you guys with me? All right. Now, how can we show the whole Bible's true? That's what we do in the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Uh, so if you want to go further, the books are available, but before we do, I want to point out here some of the other uh, lines of evidence. We just covered embarrassing stories, excruciating deaths, there's early sources, eyewitness details, embedded confirmation, expected predictions, that's Old Testament prophecy, extra biblical writers, and the explosive growth of the church out of Jerusalem. Don't have time to get into it now. Uh, but if you want to go further, you can. That book is available on the book table. If, uh, if it is, if not, we have a QR code where you can get it. And I want to point out, by the way, that all the proceeds from sale of the books will go to feed needy children. Mine. Okay? <laughs> Just so you know. All right. So let's go through the whole argument again. Does truth exist? The answer is, if somebody says there's no truth, you're going to say, is that Okay, does God exist? All right, we talked about three arguments. First argument, 
Cosmological, the beginning argument. Second argument, teleological or design argument. Third argument, moral argument. You get attributes of God, nearly several of them, from just those three arguments. Are miracles possible? What's the greatest miracle in the Bible? Creation, Genesis 1.1. If that verse is true, every other verse is at least possible. And is the New Testament telling us the truth about the resurrection? We just looked at two lines of evidence. There are many more. But yeah, it sure seems like they would. Why would they invent it? All right? So if you want to go further, uh, I think this book we might be out of. We may have a few more of Hollywood Heroes. Now, Hollywood Heroes deals with the fact that um, so many of the movies that you watch today are really borrowed from the greatest story ever told. Uh, fantasy movies and, and superhero movies like Captain America, Iron Man, Harry Potter. Harry Potter? Yeah. Um, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Batman, Wonder Woman. We cover all that in the book. My son and I wrote that actually. And uh, there's some good life lessons and some good apologetics just in that book alone. So check that out. We may have a few more of those left. All right, last thing before we go to your questions. Oh no, I gotta forget, don't forget. See this uh, number here, 855-909-0582? If you text the word evidence to that phone number, I'm gonna send you the entire 365 slide PowerPoint presentation in a PDF format. I've only showed you tonight maybe 20, 30 slides. The whole thing is 362 slides. So if you wanna see everything and look at it at your leisure, Text the word evidence to 855-909-0582. And if you forget that number, you can go look at the YouTube thing from last night. It's on that as well, all right? So it's true, Christianity is. So what if it's true? So what if it's true? What's the big deal? Well, the greatest news is that someone actually did die for you. Now, when I was in the Navy, I was in naval aviation. And we had to earn golden wings, which were fairly hard to earn. But there's nothing more difficult in the Navy to earn than a golden trident. That's what the SEALs wear. Very few people that start SEAL training finish SEAL training. Maybe 5% make it through. Those that do wear that trident with pride, it is their identity. When Michael Monsor was buried in Rosecrans Cemetery in San Diego, California, just about every Navy SEAL on the West Coast showed up for his funeral. And when they passed his casket, they took off their tridents and pressed them into his casket. They took their identity and put their identity in the one that died for them, the one that sacrificed for them. That's what we're supposed to do. But our culture says, oh no, no, uh, put your identity in your political party or put your identity in your ethnic group or put your identity in your sexual orientation or your sexual preference or put your identity in your vocation or your bank account. Or Do you realize that none of those things are ultimate, ladies and gentlemen? That none of those things are gonna bring complete fulfillment? That if you're putting your identity in any of those things, you are setting yourself up for disappointment? If you put it in your sexual preference, what happens when your sexual preference changes or when you're no longer sexually preferred? Do you no longer have an identity? If you put your identity in another person and God forbid that person leaves you or dies, do you no longer have an identity? If you put your identity in your job, what happens when you retire or you lose your job? Do you no longer have an identity? No, your identity, your ultimate identity is not in any of those things. 
Your ultimate identity is in your savior who literally went to the cross for you. You know, in Christianity, Christianity is the only worldview where you don't achieve your identity. If you have to achieve your identity, all the pressure's on you. And there's always somebody else that can do it better. No, you don't achieve your identity, you receive your identity. It's free. John, who was an eyewitness of all this, wrote in his biography, we call a gospel, in the 12th verse of the first chapter, that he gives you the right to become a child of God by receiving him. You don't achieve it. You receive it. And not only do you receive forgiveness for what you've done, you're given his righteousness. Can you imagine that? That when God looks at you, he sees Jesus because of what he's done for you. Have you ever accepted that free gift? If you haven't, why wouldn't you? It's free and it's eternal. You can lose everything in this world. You can lose your money, you can lose your health, you can lose your life, you can lose your friends, you can lose your family. The only thing you can't lose is Jesus. Why wouldn't you take that? Father, I pray if there's someone here who's never accepted the free gift that you've provided that tonight would be the night they would. Nothing else is eternal, nothing else is completely satisfying, nothing else is and should be the center of our life than you. So I pray that if there's someone here who hasn't accepted that tonight, they would in Christ's name, amen. All right, Austin's here. We're gonna take some text questions, ladies and gentlemen. Everybody give it up for Dr. Frank Turek. And, and, I, and we're gonna try and do this in like rapid fire form. Yeah, I get no, like in the 30 next, seconds to a minute Okay, in the next, question, so I can't the next answer it fully. 10, 15 minutes, we're gonna try to tackle a lot of the questions that you've texted in. And may I just say, Dr. Turek, I won't use the word awesome because I already got rebuked last Don't night. Don't do that. But that was yeah. a fantastic It, uh, it would be awesome if you didn't use that word. Okay, <laughs> uh, I'll just shut up. Um, okay, a couple of great questions that I wanted just to um, rattle off to you, Dr. Mm -hmm. Turek. Someone texted in, this is a good question. As you've been doing this for a while, as you've gone to different colleges, uh, specifically in the secular realm, have you noticed an easier or harder time from the audience to accept these arguments as culture changes? And how have you adjusted the arguments to current culture? Yeah, I think that most of the answers, or I should say most of the questions we get now, maybe 70% have to do with morality because that's where people live every day. They don't give you a lot of pushback on the cosmological argument, but they might do it on the moral argument, and they're gonna ask questions that pertain to them, usually the sexual issues, right? Yeah. That's gonna come up. Yeah. So I've seen more of that because that's where people are living now. They're living in the world of morality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's the strongest argument against God or Christianity that you've heard, and how have you responded to that? I think that the probably the strongest argument emotionally is evil, but it's not the strongest argument intellectually because as we already pointed out, there would be no evil unless there was good and there'd be no such thing as good unless there were God. Mm -hmm. But if you really wanted to get somebody to emotionally say, oh, there can't be a good God, look at all those children that just died, right? You're, they're gonna say, oh yeah, that's awful. That there can't, why didn't God jump in? Right. Now, now we can deal with that question and we don't always know why God doesn't jump in. 
But there is something known as the ripple effect, that every event affects every other event, and just because we can't see any good reason coming from a terrible event now doesn't mean that that event might not ripple forward and bring forth a great good later. We just yeah. can't see it, God can. Especially when that topic of evil is so personal, mm -hmm. it's easy to want to jump in with the philosophical exactly. answer yep. versus maybe a, a pastoral answer and just meeting them where they are in that pain can be a, a tricky process to, That's right. to discern. In fact, when somebody asks you if there's a good God, why is there evil, you should always stop and say, well, that's a great question, but why do you ask it? If the person says, I'm just intellectually curious, okay, then you go the philosophical answer. If they say, my baby died last week, they don't need a philosopher, they need a pastor. Yeah. Um, I think this is a, a good question. Um, someone texted in, how do I debate less philosophical or intelligent atheists who don't respond to reason or believe what they do out of principle. That's like saying, how do you have a logical conversation with people who reject logic? You don't. You, you, you ask them the key question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And if they hesitate or say no, you just move on to somebody else. And if yeah. there are people in your life, you can continue to love them and pray for them and plant seeds, but you move on to other people. I yeah. mean, Jesus even talks about sending out the 70, right? If, they, uh, if you go to a town where they reject you, kick the dust off your sandals and go somewhere else. Yeah. Don't cast your pearls before swine. How judgmental of Jesus. Yeah. He's calling people swine. <laughs> um, Dr. Turek, in regards to evolution, so this question, um, you know, someone was here probably Monday night where we talked more about evolution and mm -hmm. creation. In regards to evolution, why do so many seem committed to it? What are some material to understand and refute evolution? So would you have any good material, book recommendations, podcasts? That Depends really on how deep on you that? want to go. If you want to go deep, get anything by Stephen Meyer, M-E-Y-E-R from Discovery Institute. His newest book is called The uh, Return of the God Hypothesis. Uh, which is an excellent book. Um, I've taken a lot of Stephen's work and some other works and made it um, for the average person. I think you could probably, uh, most average people can, can comprehend Steve's work too, but I just try to condense it in a book that I wrote called Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you go to the Discovery Institute, discovery.org, you'll, you'll hear from some of the best intelligent design people who critique the evolutionary worldview. Yeah, and kind of um, second part of that question, mm -hmm. in regards to evolution, why do you feel that so many people are committed to it? Well, there's no other game in town. If evolution isn't true, then uh, the only other alternative is some sort of intelligent being. And uh, let me just see if I have a quote here from Richard Lewontin. I don't know if I have it in my, uh, my deck here, but uh, some of the people, uh, yeah, here it is. Check this quote out by Richard Lewontin. I don't know if we, can we show this right here? This guy is, was an evolutionist and uh, he taught at Harvard. He died recently. Here's what he said. He said, it's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori, meaning our prior adherence to material causes, to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is absolute for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, look, there's either a 
non-intelligent cause for something or an intelligent cause for something. There's no other possibility. He's saying if we allow an intelligent cause as a possibility, we're, we're letting a divine foot in the door. We've got to rigorously stay to our philosophical presupposition that all causes are material, that there's no intelligent cause out there. Now, you might ask them, do, you, do they think the books they write come from an intelligent cause? <laughs> like, like themselves, right? They're ruling out intelligent causes before they look at the evidence. That's really it. Um, and there's a, lot of, there's a number of motivations for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what all the motivations are, but uh, someone put it this way. In China, you can criticize Darwin, but not the government. In America, you can criticize the government, but not Darwin. Mm. So you're not gonna get a tenured position anywhere if you are in any way a believer in intelligent design. Um, maybe in the next uh, just five minutes, maybe we can tackle these two questions, mm-hmm. Dr. Turk. Someone texted in, if God loves everyone, why did he destroy everyone in the flood except for Noah and his family? So that question is, you know, can be asked in many different forms. If God loves everyone, why did he destroy the Canaanites? Yeah, the well, first of all, what people seem to forget is that When God plays God, he has a moral right to do that. When we play God, we don't. In other words, I I was at uh, Oklahoma Central University a few years ago and a young lady got up to the microphone and said, I can't believe in the good God because he drowned all the people in Noah and the Canaanites and all this. Um, You know, God kills people. And I said to her, can I just ask you a question about that? Where are you on the abortion issue? Are you you pro-choice or are you pro-life? She goes, oh, I'm pro-choice. And I said, let me ask you a question. Why is it that when God plays God in the Old Testament and decide who lives and who dies, he's immoral, but when you play God here on earth and decide who lives and dies through abortion, that's your moral right? Mm. You know, what, what, yeah. why is that? The truth of the matter is God can kill any of us at any time for any reason because he can resurrect us. Mm. And if Christianity's true, people don't die, they just change location. Yeah, they go amen. from this life to the next life, but it's up to God when that happens. We don't have the right to do that. We only have the right to do that under very limited circumstances. In a just war, in self-defense, or if we're part of a government that can impose capital punishment on a guilty murderer. Yeah. Those are the only reasons we can kill another human being justif- in a justified way. Yeah. God can take us out at any time, and when you read either Noah or the Canaanites or any of these things in the Old Testament, it's always because of judgment. Right. God is judging people because he's just. Yeah. And he can, look, all of us are going to die at some point unless Jesus comes back before we do. Is, is God a murderer when he kills you or when he takes his hand away from you? No. He's the creator of life. He can take it from any time he wants. He can take it. Yeah, when mankind does evil, everyone asks, why doesn't God intervene? Mm-hmm. And then when he does intervene, they're like, God. They're all upset. They're all why upset. are you doing it? Yeah. yeah. All right, let's end on a fun question. This is speculation, kind of goes back to Monday night's uh, time with us. With as many galaxies that are out there, do you think there's a possibility of God's creation of life in some of the other galaxies? And do you think Jesus had to die for those creations like he had to do for us? You mean is there intelligent life on other planets, basically? Basically, yeah, have some fun with us here. I'm not sure there's intelligent life here. Well, that's it, yeah. (laughs) What do you think? That's a good point. I, I, now, on Monday, if you weren't here, um, we talked about the fact, and we have this new video on our YouTube channel that explains this in about three minutes. It's called uh, The Heavens. And um, 
the number of stars in the universe are about equivalent to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches on all the earth times 100,000. And in our galaxy, to go from one star to another star, going five miles a second, which is space shuttle orbit speed, you would, it would take you over 200,000 years to get to the next nearest star. Now you get an idea of the immensity of the universe. And despite all that, scientists generally are saying it's unlikely there is other life anywhere else. And if there is life anywhere else, we're only speculating. Mm -hmm. uh, if, there, if it's moral life and they sin, then maybe God sent a savior there too, if, he, if they're creatures made in his image. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know. Yeah. It's, it wouldn't change Christianity at all if there is life anywhere else, yeah. uh, biological life. So it wouldn't change it at all. Dr. Turk, this has been so fun. Listen. Um, we didn't have time to get to all of these questions, but he most likely has answered all of these questions. If you just would YouTube Dr. Frank Turek, you can watch him go to different college campuses all across the country and have live interaction with students who ask some really tough questions. So I really encourage you, go check out his YouTube channel. Where else can they find your content, Dr. Turk? Get our app, if you would, the Cross-Examined app. Two words in the App Store, Cross-Examined. It streams our I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast and our TV show. Uh, and uh, it has a quick answer section on there. So you might be having lunch with somebody and they bring up a question you can't answer. All you need to do is take out your droid or your iPhone and go, hey, hang on, I'm getting a text. <laughs> <laughs> hey, what about this? <laughs> Mr. Poopy Pants. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna go to the- All right, here. yeah, Dr. Frank Turek is gonna make his way to the book table. Give it up for Dr. Frank Turek. Monday Night's crowd uh, basically cleaned us out as far as his books go. He still has a few more copies, so um, I see some of you sneaking out already. But can I at least pray first before you, you leave? We gotta be spiritual, right? Um, all right, let me pray and then I'll dismiss you to the book table and you can get a picture with Dr. Frank Turk. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for the time that you've given us. I pray that you would continue to equip us through your word and uh, we're just so appreciative of Dr. Turek. We pray that you would bless him, protect him as he travels. Uh, we love you, God, and uh, we just continue to ask that you would give us wisdom. We don't have all the answers on this side of eternity, but you do, so I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to teach us as we dive deep into your word. We love you and it's in Jesus' name we pray and everybody said amen okay God bless you guys we'll questions see you comments he, he does it pretty good doesn't he we have the series I still don't have enough faith to be an atheist where he goes into much greater depths over a period of I think there are 12 parts in that we'll do that eventually forensic faith starting next week if the books get here where, uh, as he was talking about Jay Warner Wallace, um, leads, leads us through the investigation. It's kind of cool. No questions, comments? Okay, it's perfect time. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for men like Dr. Turk and the, the information that he's able to, uh, to throw at us relatively quickly for his writings and his presentations so that we can understand just a little bit better ways that we can communicate. We just trust that that would bring you glory, that we would take the opportunities to talk to folks and, uh, and to, to see you move in their lives. 
as we uh, continue in the service to follow, to worship you and to, um, to fellowship with each other, to study your word and to uh, sing. We trust that that would bring you glory. That's our desire, to always bring you glory. Thank you for all that you do for us. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.
no bad time to start It don't have to sound pretty Just tell them what's on your heart Cause it's not a religion Cause it's more like a friendship So just talk to your father Like you are his kid Just start talking to Jesus Just start talking to Jesus Cause you can talk to Jesus Whenever you Just start talking to Jesus Just start talking to Jesus Just keep talking to Jesus For the rest of your life Good morning Pulling teeth. <clears throat> well, I know a few dentists. Anyways, good morning out in cyberspace. Please uh, let us know that you're there by putting your praises and prayer requests in the chat box. Ladies Bible study tomorrow, Monday, 2 p.m. On Zoom only. Oh. And in person, okay. Yes. That's why I was conflicted. I'm like, is it only or is it in person? It's like reading one of my sentences when I'm half asleep. Thanks. I feel the love. All right. Family Bible study, 7, per, 7 p.m. on Zoom. Only. Yeah. Don't. And on Wednesday. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to Friendship Grace Brethren. When you when you have self-esteem, we'll make sure you don't have it. Alright, what do we have going on? Good morning, Brian. Temp is a high of 30, 33, low high of 53. Katrina, you are very confused. Is your You have conflicting numbers. And uh, several digital bulletin is just like a regular bulletin, but digitally. So no paper, you save a tree. Anything else? I don't think so. Alright, what praises and prayer requests do we have? Put the mic on. Uh, pray for my son Shay and his family. We're not going to go into depth of, of the needs there. Alright, pray for Shay and all that. What else do we have going on? Uh, you all know uh, Robert and Shirley, and we, we prayed uh, Wednesday night, maybe even last week, Sunday, uh, potential breast cancer for Shirley. The uh, definitive answer from the doctor is that it's the size of a pencil eraser, stage one, very minor, so she's going for outpatient surgery to uh, have that uh, removed. And they were very excited about uh, that prognosis. I had to look down at the eraser, how small that was. Right. What else do we have going on? 
All right, I talked to uh, Miss Wendy. If you've been to uh, the Christmas party, you've met Wendy. Uh, she's doing good, working too much, but just kind of keep her in her prayers. Hi, AF. We're glad you're there. Angie, I think. Anything else, folks? Any praises? You know, it's not a thousand degrees outside. All right. If not, let's talk to Jesus. Dear Lord, thank you so much for everything. Thank you for being our Heavenly Father, but also our best friend. Uh, we pray for Shay and everything that's going on with that. Uh, Shirley and... Uh, a praise that the cancer is only a size of a pencil eraser. You are the ultimate healer. We pray for Wendy and everyone else that we touch and hope that they see uh, you in everything they do. We hope to honor and glorify you in the service to come. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Our first song of Jesus, you're me on my mind, or me on your mind, and all the things that, that Christ has done, we need to look and think of the personal relationship he has with us in it. I've read the word and read. And you left the 99 Lord, you missing Like I was written With me on your mind And the prodigal son who ran Leaving his home behind Part where the father came running to meet him. Did you say that with me on your mind? When I left the king of the world would give one single thought to my broken heart. Who am I that the God of all grace wipes the tears from my face? Says him as you are. Paid the price, you took the cross, you gave your life, you did it all on your mind. Knowing you're there, you me, just knowing you call me your child. It's flooding my soul with unspeakable hope. Thank you, Lord, that it's me on your mind. Who am I that the king of the world would give one single thought about my broken heart? Who am I that the God of all grace wipes the tears from my face? Says, come as you are. You paid the price. 
You took the cross. You gave your life. You get it all. We on your mind. Me on your mind. Me on your mind. Words in red of a heavenly home on high. You're preparing a place where the sorrows erased, and when I'm in you, there's me on your mind. Who am I that the king of the world should give one single thought from Gaiacan heart? Who am I that the God of all grace you mirrors on my face and says, Come as you are. You paid the price. You took the cross. You gave your life. And you did it all for me. With me on your mind. With me on your mind. On your mind, your mind, to one day make everything new. everything new Jesus one day you will bind every wound former things shall pass away no more tears one day you'll make sense of it all Jesus one day every question resolved Empty, anxious thought left behind. No more fear. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, We'll sing and shout the victory. One day we will see face to face. Jesus, bear a greater vision of grace. And in a moment we shall be changed on that day. One day we'll be free, free indeed. Jesus, 
One day all this struggle will cease. We will see your glory revealed on that day. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, we'll sing and shout the victory. All get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. When we all see Jesus, We'll sing and shout the victory. One day, one day, we'll be singing loud. One day we will see face to face Jesus We're a greater vision of grace In a moment we shall be changed In a moment we shall be changed In a moment we shall be changed on that day when we all get to heaven what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all see Jesus we'll sing and shout the victory we'll sing and shout the victory it'll be a glorious day another song kind of tied together with one of the the hymns of the faith glorious day living he loved me Day when heaven was filled with his praises, one day when sin was as black as could be, Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin, dwelt among men, my example is he. The world became flesh, the light shined among us. His glory revealed, living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sin far away, rising he justified, freely forever, one day he's coming, oh glorious day, oh glorious day.
Under the lehenim of Calvary's mountain, one day they nailed him to die on a tree. Suffering anguish, despised and rejected, bearing our sins, my Redeemer is he. Hands and iterations down on a tree and took the nails for me, living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sins far away, praying he justified, freely forever, wonder he's coming, oh glorious day. Glorious day. One day the grave could conceal him no longer. One day the stone rolled away from the door. Then he arose over death he had conquered. Now he's ascended, my Lord, evermore. Death could not hold him, the grave could not keep him from rising again. Living he loved me, dying he saved me, buried he carried my sin far away. Rising he justified, failing forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day, oh glorious day, glorious day. One day the trumpet will sound. Is coming one day, the skies in his glory will shine. Wonderful in our beloved, my Savior Jesus is mine. Living, he loved me, dying, he saved me, buried, he carried. My sins far away, rising he justified, failing forever. One day he's coming, glorious day, oh glorious day, glorious day, glorious day. build my life. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever sing, live for you, 
we live for you. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one that could ever say. Worthy of every breath we could ever bring. We get for you. Oh, we live for you. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Hey, who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me. Give your love to those around me. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one that could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Oh, we live for you. Only there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my heart in wonder. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in the love to those around me. Yeah. 
upon your love is firm foundation I will put my trust in you alone and I will not be shaken Our scripture today from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You may be seated. We are more than conquerors. That's a pretty good message just in itself, right? We're more than conquerors. We're back in the book of Romans this morning. We're in the last section of chapter 8. And I think by the time we're done today, you'll... You might agree with me that Romans 8 is the best chapter in the New Testament. When we were last here in Romans, we saw the Apostle Paul talking about the future glory that we look forward to as his children. Paul then presented that unbroken chain, illustrating the path of God's chosen to glory. From his choosing until we're glorified. In our passage this morning, we're going to focus on the everlasting love God has for us. So let's dig into our text this morning and see if we can see what God has for us here. We are more than conquerors. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? So I I just have to do this because it's what I do. What's the answer to this rhetorical question? If God's for us, who can be against us? Everybody, but who cares? Turn your microphones on and do it again. Everybody, but who cares? Everybody, but who cares? Thank you, Dr. Randy. That's right. Randy says the answer is everyone, but who cares since God is with us? That's absolutely the truth. But this question by Paul is much more than a rhetorical question. This question by Paul is the first of a series of five questions that build the structure for this final section of chapter 8. We're going to see this morning he asks five of these rhetorical questions. For the Christians in Rome, at the time they received this letter, there were a lot of forces against them. If they were Jewish Christians, Christians, the Jews were against them. The non-regenerate Jews were against them. Rome was against them. Their neighbors were against them. Everybody was against them, right? So when, when Paul would ask the question, if God's for us, who's against us? The answer is everybody. In Rome in 57 AD, when this letter was written, Christians were often hunted. They were killed impaled on stakes 
lit as torches, fed to the lions, and that's just in Rome. So the question to, to the church in Rome is a significant question. In the previous section, Paul had told them about their future glory with Jesus for eternity. He then moves back into a discussion of our life until glory. Here's what we have to look forward to, being in, in heaven in glory for eternity with, with Jesus. But until then, we got to go through our life. Remember Paul's purpose for writing this letter to the Romans. He wanted to prepare the Roman church to be the base of operations for his western Mediterranean swing and uh, missionary efforts. He wanted to go to the western Mediterranean through North Africa, through South Europe, and into Europe proper. He wanted to have a base of operations that was relatively close, and Rome was the perfect city. Good travel in and out, both by road and by ship, to all the other points west, and so he wanted to make it their, his... Uh, base of operations. In the previous section, Paul made it abundantly clear that God's chosen will ultimately be with, glory, with God in glory. Those who oppose God, plan, God and his plan can't prevent God's plan. We've seen that before, right? Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And what? The gates of hell shall not, not may not, but shall not, prevail against it. Jesus told Peter, look, I'm going to build my church, Peter. You're going to be part of it. And Satan's not going to win. You can't thwart God's plan. The plan of God to build his church will not be stopped by anyone. Not Nero, the Roman emperor at the time. Not anybody that would come after him. Not Satan himself. I love the juxtaposition of the previous section in Paul's question. You're going to be in glory with, with God forever. So who could be against you? As Randy would say, no one. Everyone. Because God's in control. We'll be able to be with Jesus as brothers and sisters for eternity. Yet Satan and his forces will be working against us. I can't imagine a more difficult place to be a Christian than 57 AD Rome. Nero is really feeling his oats. He's really beginning to cause a lot of distrust of the church. He'd eventually burn down a significant portion of Rome. Scholar, historical scholars are kind of at odds whether or not he actually did it. And I think the evidence points that he did, or he at least co-opted it. <laughs> So he could make the, the, the church look bad. He said the church did it. Whether he actually lit it or not, it's a different story. But he said the church did it. Now everybody in town, you can, can you imagine what it would be like if you came in and you burned down half of Lee County? And then somebody, somebody official, somebody with authority would come in and say, well, the church did it so they could build a new church. We wouldn't be very popular. Well, that's exactly what was going on in Rome. So when Paul asked the question, 
who could be against you, there was some serious contemplation in their minds about what he was asking. Paul goes on and he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is question number two. He builds on the previous question by asking another profound question. If God, who didn't spare his only son, but gave him up, sacrificed him for us, how will he not also give you graciously all things? Paul says that God didn't spare his own son. You know, it's easy to spend other people's money. It's much more difficult to spend your own. It's easier to send someone else's kids to war. But when you sign that declaration of war and your own children will be involved, that's more difficult. God was profound in saying to Jesus, God the Father was profound in saying to Jesus, this is your mission. Jesus was profound in saying, yes, I'll accept that mission. How could anyone think that God won't give us all that he's promised us because he's already proven he'll sacrifice everything for us, is Paul's point. God saved us for his glory and for his purpose. How can you imagine that he wouldn't do, that he wouldn't complete what he's promised to do? First of all, he can't not give us what he promised. Because he promised it. And he can't go back on a promise. Most scholars believe that as Paul was writing this, he had in mind Abraham and Isaac. The son of promise. Not his first son. His first son was the scheming situation where Sarah used her servant to get a son for Abraham. But the first son of promise, the one that God said, I'm going to build from him a people. And God said, look, I want you to go up to the, to the mountain where I tell you and I want you to sacrifice your son. So Abraham loads up the stuff. And along the way, Isaac says, hey, hey dad, we got fire, we got wood. Where's the lamb? God will provide. Abraham trusted God to provide. Either in resurrecting Isaac or providing a substitute for Isaac. Most scholars believe that Paul had that story in mind when he's writing this. God didn't spare his own son, so how can he not give you what he's promised? One of my favorite New Testament scholars is Ken Boa. And in the Holman New Testament commentary, he says, The precedence God has already established by demonstrating in Paul and the believers in Rome that no one can thwart his salvific ends, and by giving the best he had to give, provide good reason for believers to rest in God's protection. God had already set a good precedent. He had already established how far he was willing to go. Dr. Bola is saying that God always does what he says he'll do. The truth provides us comfort and assurance for the future. 
If you've got a 100% trustability rating, people are more likely to trust. You know, uh, years ago on eBay, before all these other places got pretty good, there, there were ratings, satisfactory ratings. How, how high could you get? And you always got upset when you would do a transaction and somebody would give you a low rating because it meant other people wouldn't trust you. God had already established 100% trustworthiness. So how could we even think that he wouldn't do what he's promised us he would do? Imagine if you're a Christian in Rome while Nero was the emperor. Temporal, temporal things didn't look too good for you. Most of the time you had to go into the catacombs below Rome to, have, to fellowship with other Christians. Kind of like modern day China. A report has just come out in the last couple of days that the Communist China, Chinese Communist Party has really cracked down on Christians. They've used the guise of, of COVID and their COVID policies, but they have cracked down on the church such that most churches can't meet in the open anymore. David Platt does a uh, Bible study every year called Secret Church. He does it in the open, but he started it when he was visiting a church in an area where they couldn't have open meetings, and so they would meet for 24 or 36 hours straight in a secret meeting, secret church they called it. The church in Rome was struggling. Nero and his henchmen were all around. And they didn't want to be stuck on a post or fed to a lion. But Paul's reminding them that no one can prevail against the church. Nero is not near big enough to stand against God and his plan. So Paul continues on in verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I love this. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? In order to understand this question, to, make, to have it make complete sense, we need to remember what Satan is doing today. Today, look at what John says in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. That's Satan. Satan is not in hell today. Satan is up front in the throne room saying, Hey, did you see what Rich did? He's not worthy of you. Do you see how he did that? Do you see how he lied? Do you see how he stole whatever it is he's accusing you of? That's where Satan is right now. He's whispering in God's ears how bad you are. So go back to what Paul says then. Keep that in mind. That's what Satan's doing right now. Paul says, Who should bring any charge against God's elect? Because it's God who justifies. What does justify mean? Justify is the action of God where he declares an accused person righteous on the basis of faith in Jesus and his sacrifice. 
God looks at you and sees the blood of Jesus and says, you are no longer guilty. I see my son in you. So come on, Satan. Accuse me all you want because Jesus said, I'm okay. That's what Paul's saying here. So, Roman church, as Nero is accusing you, it means nothing. As you get accused today, it means nothing. Because God justifies you. You have been justified on the basis of Jesus' blood. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness. He doesn't see your filth. He sees your righteousness. Not because you have become righteous. Because Satan is really not lying when he accuses you before God. He may embellish, but we're still sinners. Paul's third rhetorical question is much like the first. It makes no difference what Satan does, because God's the one that's in control. God's the one who justifies. Now he goes on to, a, to another question. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So go back to Revelation. Satan's going in God's ear. And Jesus is over here going, yeah, but I died for him. But I died for him. That's what's going on here. Who can condemn you? Because you've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, the one who died, and didn't stay dead. He popped out of the grave. And he's sitting at the right hand of God, and he's interceding for us. This, the grammar of this verse makes it in the future tense. The question of who, who should condemn us should be understood as who will judge us. Well, we've already been judged, and we've been found not guilty by the blood of Jesus. Our English word condemn here is the Greek word katakrinion, which is a technical forensic word that's used to describe an action of passing judgment in an official capacity. So what judge is there that can judge you past what Jesus has already done for you? Jesus is the ultimate judge, appointed by the Father. Paul has already said that God justified us on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. Jesus died to provide God that legal ability to forgive us. Now remember what we saw in Romans chapter 8 verse 1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus died for you, because God has has chosen you, predestined you, ultimately will glorify you, there is now, therefore now, no condemnation. There can be no judgment against us because we are in Christ Jesus, who is also the judge. He's judging by himself his own standard, and he sees us as him. Righteous. So Paul's fourth rhetorical question is again kind of like the first. No one can judge you because Jesus is the ultimate judge and he's already died to save you. 
And on your case in the file room of heaven, it says case closed. It's no longer an open case. The fifth rhetorical question comes next in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What can actually take you away from God's love? No one can stand against us and win. God will not spare anything since he didn't spare his own son. No one can bring a charge against us and no one can judge us. No, no one can separate us from the love of Christ either. Look at the situation of, of the Roman Christians to whom Paul is writing. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, sword, uh, a danger, or sword. Not one of those, not all of those, are sufficient to take us out of God's love. This is eternal security. So here's a question I don't necessarily want you to open to answer out loud. What does what you are going through today fall into one of these categories? Don't think of tribulation as an end times in a, in the end times sense of the seven years. Think of it as the uh, the trouble, the 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 difficulties you're going through. Anything that you face easily fits into one of these categories. Think about what Paul is saying here. Nothing you will go through can separate you from God's love. Nothing. There is nothing in the world that can separate you. His love is greater than anything you could ever encounter. It's eternal security. Nothing can separate you from God's love. There is no trouble you can get in that will separate you. There's not enough distress to make God not love you anymore. Persecution by the world will not separate you from God's love. You will never go hungry, so hungry that God can't still love you. Nakedness conveys the idea of being destitute. And you'll never be so poor that God won't love you. There's no danger that you could be in that would cause God to jump off and say, I'm out. You're... Your uh, guardian angel may say, that's it, I'm out. I used to tell Kate when she was learning to drive, if you keep driving like that, the guardian angel is going to jump off. I suspect some of you drive like that still today. But God never will jump off. Right? Your guardian angel may, but God won't. The world can come after you to hurt you, but God will never leave you. No war or insurrection takes you out of God's love. There is nothing that ha can happen. I mean, Joe Biden could get reelected, and God will still love you. You'll, you. You might question that he still does, because he does, but you understand my point. Nothing in life separates you from God's love. You're his plan. He chose you before he created the world. That's real comfort in that. Paul go, goes on then to quote a, a portion of uh, Psalm 44.22 from the Septuagint. In verse 36, as it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long, and we are guarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
at first reading, this quote seems like it's maybe a little out of place. But when you think about it for a bit, you, you come to see that Paul is quoting a priestly psalm that reflects God's chosen will face adversity and affliction. affliction. This is a psalm not written by David, but it's written by priests. And he's talking about the, the, the affliction that the world will send our way. This and many other passages fly in the face of the modern movement that God will give his children everything they want in this life. That God will, if you have enough faith, and send me $25, God will give you all the peace you can have, all the glory you can have, all the wealth that you can have. You'll never get sick. Send me $25. That's what happens. Well, maybe with inflation they're up to 50 or 100 bucks now. <laughs> That's not what Jesus told us. He said, look, your life's going to suck. It's going to be bad. They're going to want to hurt you. But it's okay. Because you can't be taken out of my plan. No one can actually get you. Paul replies to his own question in verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We're more than conquerors. We can't be separated from God's love because we are more than conquerors through the power of Jesus working in us. The word conqueror brings the idea of complete and total victory. This means that we can't fail when empowered by God. There should be comfort in that. Because frequently I feel feel like I'm a failure. But we talked about this last week in the business meeting. When we're doing what God tells us to do, the way he tells us to do it, we are not failures. We're more than conquerors. All of those temporal things that prevail against God and his plan, because God has made us more than victorious to overcome them. This is really huge. Look how Paul continues now. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul previously spoke about temporal things, and the temporal world will try to separate us from God's love. Now he brings us into the spiritual dimension as well. The end result is that there is nothing. Read, no thing, nothing, physical or spiritual, that can take you away from God. Not life or death. Your death doesn't separate you from God. Quite the contrary, for the church, your death puts you in His presence. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Angels don't have the power to keep you from God. Demons, including Satan, don't have the power to keep you from God. Despite what Charlie Daniels wrote and the devil went down to Georgia, he's not going to barter for your soul. And if you don't play well enough, he's going to take your soul. That doesn't work. As a Christian, I think Charlie Daniels knew that, but it's still a good song. The world ruler of the Greco-Roman period couldn't take you away from God. 
all the gods of the Greco-Roman mythological system couldn't take you from God. Things going on in the present and things going on in the future can't separate you from God. Powers is a reference to satanic forces. Satan can't steal your soul, as we've already seen. Height and depth are references to the spiritual world. Height would be heaven. Depth would be hell. You could view this as forces of good and evil. 